Good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning. I think the parents are almost everybody's back. <coughs> oh, man, what an incredible singing, hey? Sure. I don't know what you guys were thinking during that last song, but I, I could picture my life, and honestly, all of us as a church, I could picture us walking through the Red Sea onto our liberation. And I don't know if you've noticed this before. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But you know, the story of the Israelites is actually your story and my story. We were slaves. We were slaves to sin. We were slaves to shame. We were slaves to all these pleasures and all these fleshly desires. We were under yoke of slavery. And the moment we call Jesus Lord and we walk through the waters of baptism, He liberated us. He set us free. With a new identity where we're no longer orphans or slaves, we are now children of God. So as, as I was hearing all of us sing, I was just picturing all of us as an assembly walking through the sea onto our liberation saying we are children. We're children of God and I was praying that the song will be more than just the song, there would be a declaration from your heart and my heart, a declaration telling God, I believe you. I actually believe you, that if you call me your son, I believe that you are calling me your son. I believe that if you say I'm your daughter, then I am your daughter. My identity is in you. I don't know about you, but for me, that's something so powerful. That we are free. That we are identified as children. That we've been born again into a family. Throughout the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at the book of Acts. We've been looking about how amazing Jesus has done in continuing His work through the empowered apostles, through the Holy Spirit-empowered church, and how that we can be a reflection of as well. That you and I can be that Holy Spirit-empowered family, that born-again family, that free family that can declare and proclaim the amazing, amazing good and great things that God has done. So today we're going to pick up back where we left off in verse 14 of Acts chapter 2. That's where we're going to start our story today. And we're going to read quite a few verses, so I hope that you guys are ready to hear God's word being proclaimed to your hearts. You know, today we're going to have a lesson about a lesson. Today we're going to have a sermon about a sermon. Today we're going to look at the sermon that Peter preached on Acts chapter 2. But before we get into it, let's go to God in prayer. <coughs> Father God, Lord Almighty, Holy Spirit, we are in front of you right now. We declare how amazing you are, how powerful you are, how almighty you are. The fact that you're king over all, that you're seated on the throne, that nothing, nothing can come up above you. You are above everything, everything subjected under your feet. You are Lord and King. You are our God, the almighty, the all-powerful, the creator of it all. We are before your presence right now and we say thank you. Thank 
thank you so much for identifying us as your children. Thank you so much for letting us come into your family, for bringing us back into your kingdom. Thank you so much for giving us life and life to the full. Thank you so much that we are no longer slaves, that we have broken, that you have broken the chains of slavery that were holding us down and that we can come freely to you right now. Thank you, God so much for the amazing work that you have done, that you were doing from the moment creation began. You knew all of this and you were going to act and you did and you are continuously acting in our behalf. You're continuously moving us closer to you, wanting us to be reconciled with you. You do not want your children to go astray. Thank you so much. I am so grateful for your family right now. And I pray that together as a family, we will portray you the way that you deserve. We will worship you the way that you deserve. We will love you the way that you deserve. We will get to know you deeply and intimately. We will spend hours in prayer. We'll spend hours reading your word. We'll spend hours with family because this is what it's all about. We'll spend hours proclaiming, proclaiming our King and Lord. Thank you so much. That you're working in us, that you're working through us, that you're working in spite of us, that you are moving every single second to bring more and more of your children back to your family. We pray right now that you will bless us with your Holy Spirit. That it is you, Holy Spirit, that will ignite our hearts, that will open our minds, that will open our ears, so that all of us will receive the powerful message that you left for us in your word. That all of us will have a tuned ear and a listening heart to know exactly what it is that you're calling us, that you're trying to impress and imprint in our hearts. May we all walk away more bold, more courageous, more humbled, more loved, more desirous to proclaim this message. May we be in awe of the amazing grand plan, the great and grand scheme that you have done to come and reconcile all of us back to you. May we be in awe of the amazing work that you have done, that you are doing, and that you will continue to do. And we proclaim, God, we are your children. We believe you are our Father. And we want to live our lives solely to please you, Abba. May your will be done. May you get the glory. May we all, as obedient, loving children, follow you every step of the way. We praise you and we thank you for all of this in your holy name. Amen. <coughs> um, last week, Uncle Neil um, helped us to realize that what we get in Acts chapter 2 is a very, 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 very incredible moment of history and I, and I hope that we remember that that we were we're in the point in the Jewish history where people are celebrating the the Pentecost the feast of harvest and and all the meaning that that this entails that at this moment the, the nation of Israel was born and at this moment the Torah was given to them and this is almost like the birthday of Israel and at that exact same day at that exact same holiday if you may there's a new moment 
something that, that is about to blow everybody's mind. But, but I want us to remember, as we were listening to last week, this is not something out of the blue. This is not something that was just randomly or looked for an opportunity and we did that. This was something planned. This was something completely purposed from the beginning. God has moved through the Israel history to get them to this point. And, and there's so much Old Testament history in the chapters and the verses that we're going to read that I don't think we're going to have enough time to go through and examine every single one of, one, of them. But I, but I hope you believe me when I tell you this. If you and I were an Old Testament Jew, at this moment in history, we would be looking for the Messiah. Because we would be reading scripture and we would understand, it's happening soon. It's happening soon. This, this Messiah is coming anytime soon. We know that. The scriptures point us to this time in history. We would be looking for the Holy Spirit. Because we would hear the Old Testament scriptures pointing us out to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. We would be looking for signs and wonders. We would be looking for this. We would pay attention and we'd say, okay, is he the Messiah? Is he the Messiah? And, and if you read Luke 24, in that, that conversation that these two men have on the road to Emmaus, they were thinking that way. And they talked to Jesus and they were telling him, there's this guy named Jesus and we thought he was going to be the prophet from God. Because they were expecting him. So this is not out of the blue. This was completely appointed, completely purposed, very specific. The same time where the Israel nation was born, the same time the church is born. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the grand scheme of redemption. The moment that God started from the beginning to bring us to Jesus. Who fulfills all Old Testament prophecy. Christ and the church fulfill all Old Testament prophecy. Okay? So let's put that in the back. And, and I hope you believe me on this one. But if you don't, come and talk to me afterwards. We can look at the scriptures. We can look at what the Bible is pointing us to. We don't have time to look at that all right now. But just put yourself in that story for a second. You are looking for the Messiah. And you know the signs that accompany. So when you see them, you recognize them and you're aware. Then who is this Messiah? I'm waiting for him. Are we together? All right. So at this moment in history, we get the Holy Spirit is poured out. The apostles are speaking in different languages. People are like, you guys are drunk. They're making fun of their status. They're making fun of their poverty. They're making fun of them. And it's at this moment that Peter stands up and starts preaching. And we're going to read from verse 14. <clears throat> but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all of who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And, it is, and he quotes the prophet Joel, verse 17. And in the last days. It shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old 
man shall see dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show you wonders in the heaven above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let me address something very quickly here. In verse 17, Peter quotes Joel and he says, In the last days. Again, so much study that we need to do this. But believe me, this is not talking about the end times. This is not about when the whole earth and the universe is going to be destroyed and Jesus is... That's not what it's talking about. When you read in the Bible, in the last days, you have to ask yourself, last days of what? Because in the Bible, the term last days is used so many times for so many different purposes. The last days of so-and-so's life. The last days of this or that nation. The last days of this certain part of history. The last days are not talking about the end of everything. They're talking about the end of something. And it's specific. And it points you to it. It's as if you and I would say, this is the last days of great rugby for South Africa. <laughs> You would, you would be talking about a specific time, although it seems like the great rugby kind of picked up since we kind of killed it yesterday. <laughs> You're talking about a specific time in history. You're not talking about the everything, that everything is now ended. You're saying last days of this specific thing. So let me give you a, a Bible pro tip. The prophecy in Isaiah 2 the prophecy in Daniel chapter 2, and the prophecy of Joel chapter 2, all these three prophecies point out to Acts chapter 2. In Isaiah and in Daniel, we have the prophecy of the establishment of the kingdom. And in Joel, we have the prophecy of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And that is fulfilled in Acts 2. So when it says the last days, we know they're not talking about the last days of the world, because it already happened. It was already fulfilled. So if the world was supposed to end when Joel prophesied, then the world was supposed to end 2,000 years ago. And we're still here. And we know that God is not lying to us and He's not making mistakes. So maybe it's our understanding that is the one that needs to be corrected. Come on. So, the last days of what? Throughout Old Testament history, there's been time and time again when God says the last days of this or that nation. And when God is prophesying about the last days that we're reading in Joel 2, He's prophesying about the last days of Israel as God's nation. Because the Messiah would come and they would not receive Him. And the Israel that God prepared in history to be the light of the world did not do its job. So Jesus comes in and He does the job to become the light of the world. Jesus is the new Israel in which all prophecies fulfilled. So God is saying, in the last days of you guys, as my nation, all of this will happen. And what we know from history is that 30 years plus or minus after that, 
the temple was destroyed and Israel as an economy, as a nation, was brought almost to nothing. We know that there's a nation named Israel right now, but we're talking about Israel as the nation of God, as God's nation, as the people of God. That status was going to be taken away from them. And, they, and God prophesied about them and He told them when it would come. In Daniel chapter 2, we have a prophecy that tells them when the Roman Empire is in power, at that time, my kingdom is going to be established. So they know that this is happening. But they're not putting all these pieces together. Are we together so far? Oh, before I forget, second thing. Old Testament prophetic language. It's very hyperbolic. What I mean to say that it's not literal. When you read in the Old Testament that the sun becomes like blood or the moon becomes like blood, it's not saying that we're going to have a red moon, although we do have those. It's not saying that the earth is literally gone to quake. It's just language to dramatize and to emphasize how hectic this time is going to be. And you and I use language like that in our everyday lives. We use that kind of language. We say that we have earth-shattering moments. Or we say that we are going through so much pain that it's a living... (laughs) We use language like that. We're not being literal about it, are we? But we're using that language because we're trying to portray in a picture, in a story, in a way that people see, wow, it's that bad. So when the Old Testament, especially in the prophecies, use language like that, don't go look and be like, all right, I don't see the moon being red. I don't see the earth shaking, so I guess this is not happening. Look for something that is happening in history or is happening in the nation of God that is earth shattering, that would shake every foundation that they have, like the destroying of the temple. For a Jew, the the temple was the living presence of God. So if you destroy the temple, where is God going to live? That's earth shattering. That is the moon turning into a different color. That is something so crazy that you could not even predict it. So those two things we need to have in our minds when we read Old Testament prophecy. It's not literal. Not all of the time. It's mostly figurative, and the last days are a specific time in history. Not the last days of everything. Cool? Awesome. Let's get to it. So, if the Jews understood that, if the people at this time understood that, then they were waiting for the sign of the Holy Spirit being poured out, and that's why Peter is addressing them. He's telling them, look, the Holy Spirit has been poured out. As you know, it was supposed to be poured out like Joel chapter 2 says. You guys know. So he's telling them, if the Holy Spirit is poured out, it's because Messiah has already come. Because there's no other way for the Holy Spirit to be here amongst us if the Messiah hasn't arrived. So he's going to put these two prophecies together. He's about to blow their mind. He's about to say, Messiah has come. Here's the proof of it. You have the Holy Spirit. So all they have right now is like, okay, the Holy Spirit is here, so who is the Messiah? And if you check verse 21, it says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The rest of Peter's sermon is explaining to you and me, who is this Lord? Who is this guy? Let's identify who this Lord is so I can call upon Him and be saved. 
That's what the rest of the sermon is about. And think about it for you and me. Isn't that the point? We're going through our lives wandering in sin, in despair, in pain and anguish, in shame and guilt. And all we want is for somebody to tell us, where is he? Where's the guy that will free me and save me? Where's the guy that can take all of this away? How many times have you ever felt in your heart or in your mind or had a conversation where you're like, yo, I don't think God could forgive me of this. That this is too much. We have gone over the line. And, and, and when you have a conversation with somebody, it's like, but God loves you. And He points you back to, to that person, the person of Jesus Christ, who gives you hope, who gives you freedom, who gives you love. That's the story. That's the same sermon Peter is preaching. He's saying, all right, who is the Lord? He's going to tell them it's Jesus. All right, we'll keep reading verse 22. It says, Peter speaking, Men of Israel, hear this word, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty words and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let's stop right there. Unless these Jews were also Roman citizens, how can Peter so boldly say, you crucified him? Did they have the hammer in their hands? Did they put the nails in Jesus' hands? Did they tell him and, and sentence him? I mean, who knows? These guys probably might have not even been there when this happened. They traveled from all over the place. So how can Peter so boldly say, you crucified him? Maybe the same way that he can tell you and me. We crucified Him with our sin, with our rebellion, with our lordship of our very own lives that we take hold of and we say, no, I'm going to live the way that I want to live. I don't want to take into consideration all of these other things. I am Lord. And we take His grace and His love for granted and we put Him on that cross. I also think it's super amazing to say that Peter points out to them that they know Jesus. He tells them, Jesus of Nazareth, that you know. That you know because you saw him do miracles. You saw him preach. And even if they didn't see him, at least they heard of him. Or, let me throw this into the mix. I don't know what happened. I wasn't there. What if after Jesus was raised for those 40 days, he kept preaching and teaching and making miracles and people were like, what? Because Peter very boldly says, you know him, you saw him. So, how could they have seen him? Who knows? But Peter so boldly tells them that they know about this Jesus. This is not a guy that my great cousin heard from a friend that brother's cousin told him about. This is something that they know. Okay, we know Jesus of Nazareth. We've heard of his miracles. We saw his miracles. There's something about him. This is not a story. This is a historical fact. That's what's happening. So he tells them, you know of this Jesus? You saw him work miracles? You crucified Jesus. But, and this is beautiful. It says in verse 23, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. 
He does not let them go without owning responsibility. He tells them, you crucified him. But at the same time, he tells them, but God planned this long ago. God knew you guys were going to do this. God knew we were going to put Jesus on the cross. And He did this according to His plan, according to His foreknowledge. God, from the beginning, the moment He said, let there be, God knew He was going to send Jesus at this time in history to cover for all of our sins and that we were going to put Him on a cross and that He was going to be the redemption of us all. That's what Peter is saying from the very beginning to this moment. He's putting things together. He's telling them God has been working through history to get to this point. And think about it. God has been working through Israel's history with festivals and feasts and dates and times very specifically. So when the Messiah would come, so when Jesus would come, they would recognize it and be like, wow, all of this history... God is doing here. And if I ask you, wouldn't you be able to tell me the story of how God moved in your history? How God moved through people, through times, through places to bring you to the point where you say, yes, Lord, yes, I'll submit. God moves through history. God moves through time. God moves through places. God moves through people. God is sovereign and in control. And that's what Peter is telling them. This was not an accident. This is not something that you guys did. That, oh, what is God going to do now? They killed the Messiah he sent. God is like, I knew you guys were going to do this. And at the same time, he does not let us go without taking responsibility. God planned this, but you killed him. God knew this, but you crucified him. God prepared all of this for you and me, but you and I did it. It's our responsibility to take. And I love verse 24. How incredible God is and incredibly Jesus is. He says, God raised him up. The man that you and I killed, the man that you and I put on the cross, God raised him up. Losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It is impossible for death to hold Jesus down. It is impossible for death to grab a hold of Jesus and say, you're mine. The thing is, if you and I think about it, our greatest enemy is not sin. It's death. Because you and I will face death no matter what. I heard the cheesy prayer say, you know what death ratio is? One to one. Everybody that's born dies. Death is the ultimate enemy. And death could not take Jesus down. This is the Messiah and Lord you and I serve. The one that could not be hauled up, not even by death. Romans 6 says that if we died in a death like His, we shall certainly be resurrected in a resurrection like His. Something to think about. But this, this not holding up by death, this, this impossibility for death to have power over Jesus is not something just incredible and wonderful. It's something prophesied about. 
And that's what Peter does. He's like, all right, you guys killed him. God raised him up because death cannot hold him. But check it out, check it out. Just in case you're wondering, David spoke about this. He tells them in verse 25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before him. For he's at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart will be glad, and my tongue will rejoice. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will take me full of gladness with your presence. So he's saying to them, look, this was talked about by David. We know about the fact that this one, the Holy One, would not see corruption. You guys know about it. I know about it. David spoke about it. But just in case you're wondering, he tells them in verse 29, Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So just in case you're wondering, uh, maybe David was speaking about himself... Peter is like, just in case you're thinking about that, we both know that David died. He's buried. Actually, it might be interesting for you to know that where Peter was preaching, they say that the rest of David, where David was buried, could have been around the area. So he could have technically, in the middle of his sermon, be like, you and I both know that David died and we know his rest are right there. So don't even start thinking about, maybe he was talking about himself. No, no, because he's right there. He died. His body is laid. So who is he talking about? And Peter explains, verse 30, Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not going to be abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh, nor did his flesh see corruption. Again, I need to take a pause. A lot of Old Testament is happening right here. So, if you read through the book of Samuel, especially 2 Samuel, you'll come to this place in Samuel chapter 7, where God spoke to David, speaks to David, and he tells them a very, very important prophecy. A very important promise that you and I as Christians need to know. I'm not even joking about this, because this will build your faith in whatever conversation you'll have, you'll be like, wait a second, but God tells David that he will set on the throne one of his descendants and that this descendant will rule forever David was promised this 2 Samuel 7 verses 11 through 16 if you want to check it out later it's a very important promise because we know that God prophesied about a Messiah but God also prophesied about a king and he tells David about it and this is where the whole Israelite nation holds tight to because they are still waiting for the moment where the descendant of David will rise up to power and he will rule over all. That's what they're still waiting for. That's what they misunderstood. Because the Jews of that day when Peter was preaching were hoping that this Jesus, if he was truly going to be the Messiah, he was going to set himself over a throne and he would take Rome out of the picture and they would be the winners, the victorious, the kingdom. That's what they were expecting. Because he told it to a king, King David. So they were expecting a physical kingdom. But they misunderstood 
that the whole Old Testament prophecy was not pointing to physical kingdom, it was pointing to an eternal kingdom. It was pointing to an, a kingdom that would not be shaking, a kingdom that would last forever and ever and will penetrate every heart and every soul. The prophecy in Isaiah 2 that I quoted earlier talks about how all the nations come into this kingdom. Does this sound familiar? One family of many nations? This prophecy all points to the same thing, to the same Messiah, to the same guy, Jesus of Nazareth, being a king, an eternal king, a spiritual king that will rule forever, not a physical king. And that's where the confusion was about. So that's what Peter is saying in verse 30, that God swore with an oath to David that one day he would set up a, a descendant on the throne. He's telling them, remember that prophecy about the king? Well, this Jesus, that's the guy he's talking about. He's putting pieces together for them in their minds because they're looking. They have a sign, they have a sign, they have a sign, but they can't put it together because their mind is so specific that it's going to look physically and they're missing the whole spiritual aspect of it that he's like, here's the piece, here's the piece, put it together. Jesus is the one you're talking about. Jesus is the one you're thinking about. Jesus is the one you are waiting for. Are we together? I'm going to read again from verse 29. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb was with us to this day, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with a note to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So, Peter tells them, you know this Jesus, you crucified this Jesus. God planned for all of this to happen because as we know, David spoke about it. And he quotes Psalm 16 for them. And there's this very interesting phrase that it says there. It says in Psalm 16 that the Holy One will not see corruption. And then he explains to them. David was not speaking about himself. He was speaking about somebody else because David died. So he had to be speaking about somebody else. And he tells them that this somebody else is Jesus. But I want to emphasize this Holy One will not see corruption for a reason. Peter says that death was impossible to hold Jesus. We need to make a little bit of a distinction that it's not like Jesus died and was raised back up almost as if he had new life. I hope I explained this correctly. Death could not take him down. His body was physically dead, but his body was physically resurrected. It's not like his soul kind of came out of his body and all we do is see his soul. It's a bodily resurrection. The corruption that happens in you and I body when we die, when we degrade, that did not happen to Jesus. The Holy One that cannot see corruption, cannot be hold on to death, so even the physical aspects of death cannot happen to Jesus. This is a bodily resurrection. This is why Jesus tells them, put your fingers here. That's why Jesus tells him, and eats with them. Because he's in a resurrected body. A body that death cannot take down. 
I hope I make sense. I'm not trying to totally change everything, but this is important. Because the resurrection of Jesus is so much more powerful than we want it to be. Sometimes we are like, well, his body dead, but his soul came back alive. No, soul, body, everything was back. Everything. He could not see corruption. Hades could not hold him down. This Jesus God raised up. This is what the prophecy was talking about. If you see in verse 31, he says that David prophesied and foresaw about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, and he did not see corruption. Peter understood, whoa, death could not take him. He could not see corruption. He was not abandoned to Hades. Jesus was triumphant over every aspect of this. When he died on a cross and he was buried, he was triumphantly buried. He was triumphantly resurrected. He was triumphantly being back, being brought back to life. And that's what he tells him in verse 32. This God raised up from the dead and we are all witnesses of it. We're going to continue reading in verse 33. Being therefore... Exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself, the Lord, said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. I have to rush through this. I'm sorry. This is Psalms 110. Psalms 110 is David speaking again according to what Peter said. And he says, the Lord said to my Lord. How can the Lord said to my Lord if the Lord is David, if it's a descendant of David? He's saying once again, it's not David, it's Jesus. The Lord God said to the Lord Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Which means put everything under Jesus' feet. Everything he's under, under his authority. Jesus subjects everything under his Lordship and kingship. And that's what Jesus is telling them. Sorry, that's what Peter is telling them that Jesus is doing. And the sign of this is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that you read in verse 34. So let me put it very simply for us. Peter is saying, Jesus died. You killed him. But God knew this was going to happen. He was resurrected bodily. His body, we saw, we are witnesses of this. And after we, he was raised, he was glorified. He ascended, not into the heavens up there, but he came to that point where all of us could see his lordship. And when he was there, right next to God, he had the Holy Spirit. And he poured it out so that you and I could receive it. Jesus tells them in John 14, it is better for you that I leave. Because if I don't leave, the Holy Spirit won't come. The Counselor won't come. Because Jesus has to take everything under His authority. Jesus has to put everything under His feet. And now that He's Lord and King of everything, He's like, let me show you guys the amazing Lord that I am. You guys all get the Holy Spirit. And that's what Joel 2 is all about. Because the Holy Spirit only came in under specific circumstances to specific people. And Joel 2 says, everybody will get it. Young men, young women, old men, everybody will have the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus is Lord of everything. And He says, now everybody, here's the Holy Spirit. That is what Jesus is doing. Jesus was 
crucified, buried, resurrected, glorified. And in His glory, He pours out the Holy Spirit, fulfilling every single prophecy of the Old Testament. Putting all of these pieces together, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit has to be the Lord. The Lord that you killed is Jesus. So if the Holy Spirit is here and you killed Jesus and Jesus was raised and Jesus had the Holy Spirit and He poured it out, we're talking about the same person. We're talking about the guy that, the guy that you guys killed, He is the one that poured out the Holy Spirit. That's the sign. That's the miracle. That's what everything is coming together for them. And that's the moment of the climax of his sermon. And you and I know this verse probably very well. But I'm going to read this to you. <coughs> Sorry. I'm going to read from verse 32 again. This Jesus God raised up. And we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured it out. That you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven. For he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God made him. My voice. God, God made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. That's the climax. That's the moment. He puts all of these things together and saying, the Lord that was going to pour out the Holy Spirit, the Messiah that was not going to see corruption, Psalm 16, Psalm 110, Joel 1, 10, sorry, Joel 2, all of these prophecies point us to Jesus, whom you crucified. And the response is obvious. Because they were looking for the Messiah. They saw all the signs. They connected all the dots. And then they're like, what do we do? What do we do? Because now everything's coming together. And let me say this. If there was ever a more opportune time to make an altar call, it's right here. If there was ever a more precise time for Jesus, for Peter to say, okay, now everybody raise your right hand, put your left hand in your heart, and repeat this prayer, it's right here. Because everything is coming together, all prophecy, all history, all of it is coming together. Peter is putting everything in their head straight. Oh, it's all about Jesus. They come to the apostles and they're like, what do we do? So this is when Peter would say, okay, say this prayer. Right? He doesn't do that? No. Then why are we doing that in church all the time? Come on. If Peter doesn't do that, if Jesus doesn't do that, if the Bible doesn't tell us to do that, then why are we doing it? If there was ever an opportune time to do that prayer, then it would be here. But instead of a prayer, what does Peter tell them? Verse 38. Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Why didn't he tell them to say a prayer? Why didn't he tell them to just like believe in their hearts and confess with their mouth? Why didn't he tell them that? 
Because Peter, as every other person in the Bible understood, as you and I need to understand, that it's not about what we believe, it's about who we surrender to. Because whether you and I believe Jesus is Lord, He's still going to be Lord. Whether you and I believe or say a prayer in our hearts, He's still going to be King. So the point is that you and I surrender into His kingdom, surrender under His Lordship, and say, Jesus, You are the Lord. And this word repents very quickly. We know that this word means the change of your mind. So what if Peter was actually tell them, telling them, change your mind about Jesus? You thought Jesus was just a prophet that came, a good rabbi. Actually, Jesus is Lord. So maybe Peter is telling them, change your mind about Jesus. He is actually Lord. And what? Be baptized, be submerged, be put under His authority. The submersion part, you I find it super interesting that in our world today... The easy part, the baptism part, we are arguing about so much. And the hard part, the hard part to actually believe that Jesus did not see corruption, that this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, did not go into the depths of death because death couldn't hold him. He was raised back up. He went to the heavens and he poured out the Holy Spirit. That's super hard to believe. But all of us are like, yeah, that's fine. But baptism, ah, are you sure? So you're telling me that if I don't get baptized, no, I'm not telling you anything. You know what? I don't see the people in Acts chapter 2 asking questions. I don't see them being like, so do I get the Holy Spirit before or after? So what if I'm on my way to the baptistry and in a car? I, I don't see them do that. Why are we so questioning on all these things when they didn't question it? They said, repent, be baptized, boom, let's do it. I want to surrender to Jesus' authority. And that's the most important part. The baptism is just transcendent. I have so much to share, sorry. There's this thing called Jewish proselyte baptism. And this was in every Jewish mind. When a person from another nation wanted to become a Jew, they had to be baptized underwater, completely submerged, and they would raise as a Jew. People would understand that if you go to the baptistry as a Greek, you are dying to your Greek identity. And you are surrendering to the Jewish law, putting under water, and you're coming back as a Jew. You die as a person and you come back new. Very similar, right? Why? Because they understood that that was easy for them to understand. It was a cultural practice that happened over and over again. So it was not something to be questioned. Oh, baptism. I got it. The, the apostles don't focus on baptism because they knew everybody was going to understand that. They focused on lordship. And baptism was just part of it. But they never questioned it or took it out like we sometimes do. They never did that. Repent and be baptized in the name of. And this is really important. That word structure in Greek, in the name of, means by the authority of. That's literally what it means. By the authority of. So, change your mind. Jesus is not just a prophet. He's actually the risen Lord. Be baptized by His authority. Why am I being baptized? Because Jesus commands you to. That's it. Simple as that. Okay, I do that. I repent and I'm being baptized. And then He says... For the forgiveness of your sins. This word for means in order to gain something, not because of something. The same word for is the word that Jesus said, this blood is poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. 
We would never say that Jesus poured out his blood because our sins are forgiven. He poured out his blood so that our sins could be forgiven. In the same way, he's telling them, be baptized by the authority of Jesus. Why? So that your sins may be forgiven. Very quickly. And, and then what happened? All the prophecies that you're putting together. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the amazing thing. The Holy Spirit that was poured out according to Joel 2. Because Jesus was buried, resurrected, glorified. And He poured out. You and I can receive it. You and I are fulfilling Joel chapter 2. Every time we receive the Holy Spirit. When we're baptized and we receive the forgiveness of our sins. That's what this is all about. That now the Spirit is available to every single one who calls on the name of the Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, right? So who is this Lord we're calling up to? Jesus. How do we call upon Him? When we repent, when we realize that He is Lord and we are baptized by His authority, we are saved from our sin from our shame, from our guilt, from our pain, from all of these things. And we receive the beautiful blessing of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Time is running short, so I'm just going to run through this. For the promise is for you and your children and all of who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to Himself. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received His word were baptized and they were added to that day about 3,000 souls. Quickly go to verse 47. Praising God, it says in verse 47, having favor with all people, and the Lord added to their number by those who were being saved. Do you realize something? It says in verse 41 that the Lord added to their number those who were baptized. And then in verse 47 it says the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Luke just equated salvation with baptism. He just did that. The Lord added to their number those who were baptized. The Lord added to their number those who were being saved. We need to start looking at what the Bible says. And not listen so much to what our heart says. And I'm not saying, please don't, believe, don't hear this. Please don't hear this. I'm not saying that we're the only disciples because we're the only ones that get this right. No. We make many mistakes. Many, many mistakes. In our church, in our community, in our personal lives. And there's so many people who are lovers of God, who are following Jesus in this city... And in this world, that outside of our movement, and that's awesome, and I praise God for that. I praise Him for that. We're not the only ones preaching this message. That's awesome. We should rejoice in that. But for a second, also don't hear me saying that now that everybody is just a disciple. That's not what Jesus is saying. That's not what Peter is saying. Repent and be baptized. The baptism is not important. The important part is Jesus' Lordship. Baptism is just, it happens. They understood that. We should understand that. Okay. What I hope and pray, this is the sermon of Peter. I hope and pray I didn't make more confusion and I didn't make it more hard for you to understand this. All that I was trying to say is all Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in Jesus and in His church. He fulfills it at this very moment. The prophecy is being fulfilled. All of this is coming together. And people understood that. And I pray that this excites you. To know that God works through history in such specific ways to get us to this point where Jesus, at the right time, fulfills it all and that you and I get to be part of this amazing history. 
I hope this excites you and I hope that you're so willing to share this. Because the point is, who is this Lord who I need to call upon to be saved? It's the Lord Jesus. He proved that in His resurrection. He proved that in His glorification. He proved that by pouring out the Holy Spirit. And you and I prove that He is Lord more and more when we're surrendering to Him. And He gives us the Holy Spirit. And now everybody can see it the way that they saw it in the apostles. This is amazing news. The gospel of Jesus Christ that He is Lord of all and in all and over all. Amen.